0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live.
1: Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, Associate Editor at The Washington Post. All week, Washington Post Live has been putting a spotlight on climate change. So welcome to this special, This is Climate, First Look. Let's kick things off with Sarah Kaplan, a climate science and impacts reporter at the Washington Post. Sarah, welcome to First Look.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: So, big picture. How is the world doing in its effort to combat climate change and what are the biggest remaining challenges?
2: Um, The world's (laughs) not doing great. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, um, but we're already about 1.1 degrees Celsius or two degrees Fahrenheit warmer than in the pre-industrial era. And we're seeing the consequences of that, right? We see it with the catastrophic floods that happened in Pakistan, with the devastating effects of Hurricane Ian here in the United States. And the reality is that greenhouse gas emissions, the thing that drives climate change, are still rising. Um, And there's still investment in the fossil fuel infrastructure um, that is driving most climate change. And so the world is really not on track to where it needs to be. Um, I think the biggest tasks are just, I mean, it's the transformation of our whole society, our whole economy. Um, It's not easy, but there are some signs of progress. Um, The International Energy Agency just put out a really interesting report showing um, that renewable energy is actually growing even faster than anyone had predicted, and that we're on track to install a as much renewables in the next five years as we have in the past 20. Um, And then the post-zone polling shows that people really care about climate change. In the midterms, uh, more than half of Americans said that it was very important or extremely important to them. So it shows that people are watching and that they're going to be putting pressure on their representatives to do something about this issue.
1: That's really interesting. You know, Sarah, as you were speaking, it made me think of, of course, the, the Paris Climate Accords. Uh, When Donald Trump was president, he withdrew the United States from them. President Biden gets elected, uh, and he restored restored the United States to the Paris Climate Accords after taking office. Is there any way of showing what America's absence meant for the fight to combat climate change?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's a little bit difficult to quantify um, because the reality is that even when the U.S. I mean, the U.S. didn't actually leave the Paris Agreement until the very end of Trump's term, or basically around the same time that President Biden was elected. But I was just at the U.N. climate conference in Egypt, and I really did see there the way that the U.S.'s absence from global climate negotiations, and in particular its failure to follow through on some of the commitments made in Paris— we're affecting its ability to negotiate um, in Egypt. I think that a lot of uh, representatives from the U.S. came to Egypt uh, just last month and thought, you know, we look great. We just passed the Inflation Reduction Act, which is this major piece of climate policy um, that gives us a lot of leverage and a lot of credibility to push for more ambitious climate action um, here at this these UN negotiations. But what I found from talking to negotiators from especially from developing countries is that the thing that matters to them is not so much the IRA, what the U.S. is doing at home. It's whether the U.S. has fulfilled its international obligations. And they're looking at, you know, billions of dollars in funding that President Obama had promised um, to help. Especially vulnerable countries in the developing world to cope with climate change that was never delivered. They're looking at the fact that Congress has still not approved um, funds that President Biden pledged the US would provide to, um, to vulnerable nations. And so I think that, you know, the it is, it's, you know, it's difficult to quantify, but it's definitely there.
1: Yeah, let's keep talking about um COP27. As you said, you were there in Egypt last month and um, it was announced that wealthier nations would create a fund to help developing countries deal with climate disasters. Uh, few questions here, how would that work? How significant is this deal? And how is that different than say the, the pledges that were made during the, during the Obama years that you just mentioned that haven't been fulfilled or is it they're one in the same?
2: Yeah, so the difference is there's kind of three pots of what they call climate finance in these negotiations. So there's, or there's three types. So there's money that helps developing nations or vulnerable nations to transition their economies to make them greener, right? So to build out renewable energy, to um, make agriculture more sustainable, et cetera. Um, That's called mitigation. Um, So basically the things that will stop climate change from getting worse. Then there's adaptation, so things that will help countries that are already dealing with climate impacts, like drought and floods and fires and hurricanes, um, to become more resilient and so that those impacts don't cause as much damage. And so the money that President Obama had pledged was for mitigation and adaptation. It wasn't for this third category that's called loss and damage, which is really You know, when a disaster does happen and the devastation does occur, does anyone pay for, you know, the loss that occurred, the houses that were destroyed, the livelihoods that were destroyed, um, the cost of rebuilding infrastructure that was damaged? Um, And until now, the, I mean, the industrialized world, um, the US and Europe, which combined are responsible for about half of all historical emissions. So all of the, greenhouse gas pollution that has caused the warming we're experiencing right now, um, they have really stood firm saying, we're not going to pay for a loss and damage because there was a lot of fear about being held liable um, in sort of an illegal sense for the trillions of dollars in damage that we know climate change will cause. Um, but as we see climate impacts getting worse, you know, as we saw again, like what happened in Pakistan, um, the pressure on industrialized countries to pay up for some of the, you know, the harm that is being experienced um, became really, really great. And it was It was unbelievable, you know, after so many years of saying no, um, it was kind of amazing to see the U.S. and Europe say yes to this um, idea of a loss and damage fund. So none of the details have been worked out yet. It's sort of conceptually they said, yes, we will have a fund for addressing loss and damage. They're now going to spend the next year negotiating sort of how that fund will work, who pays into it, who gets to benefit from it you know, who gets to decide sort of how the funds are distributed, what qualifies. Um, So right now, the agreement is kind of more symbolic than substantive, but the symbolism is important. It shows that vulnerable nations, developing nations that didn't, you know, haven't really contributed to this problem are not going to be left to deal with the consequences on their own.
1: Sarah, so what is the global climate budget? Is is this fund that you're talking about part of that budget, or is that yet another bucket?
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, the budget is more of an atmospheric budget, so it's okay. basically how much carbon humanity can collectively afford to put into the atmosphere oh, in order to in that kind of budget. You okay. <laughs> Um, and so you know, in some ways it's a more important budget, right? Because you can always fudge with money, right? Money is a human construct. You can't fudge with physics, like physics will win. And physics says, um, you know, we have a little, you know, we have about nine years of current emissions left um, that we can afford to emit if we want to stay within our climate goals, which is about you know keeping warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Um, We're about 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit. And the, you know, one thing that's really important to say about that goal is it's not a goal like a New Year's resolution, I want to lose 30 pounds. That is like a physical threshold that scientists have identified in the way the earth functions. And they really fear that if we pass that threshold, if we warm, you know, more than 1.5, pass more than two degrees Celsius, honestly, right now we're headed to about two and a half or 2.7 degrees Celsius. Um, You know, if if we, Get actually go where we're heading, and and don't manage to change course. We're going to trigger tipping points in Earth's climate, irreversible changes that will be absolutely catastrophic. I mean, the amount of sea level rise, the amount of um, extreme weather, like millions of people will die. Honestly, <laughs> I know that's really grim, but um, that is the world we're headed towards.
1: Real fast, because we have less than a minute left. Um, uh, President Biden's goals are for the United States to cut climate pollution in half from tw- 2005 to 2030. Uh, just quick, quick yes or no. Will we make it?
2: It depends. Um, I mean, the thing is that the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, um, gets us a lot of the way there. It does not get us all the way there. So whether or not we make it depends on whether or not the U.S. can pass more climate legislation, whether states can take action, um, whether really the entire country both, you know, government and private companies and ordinary people kind of give it their all to try to get us over the line that we need to get to. And, and notably, that that goal of cutting emissions in half, again, is not just a, like, I want to lose 30 pounds this year goal. That is physically what we need to do in order to stay be- below the 1.5 threshold.
1: Um, Sarah, the best line probably of the week I've heard, and I'm paraphrasing because I'm not sure I got it right. You can fudge you can fudge with money. You can't fudge with physics. <laughs> this is a, a great line. Sarah Kaplan, climate science, and, <laughs> climate science and impacts reporter at The Post. Thank you so much for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. Thank
2: you.
1: You too. We're going to keep the conversation going with our opinions roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find Washington Post associate opinion editor, Steve Str- Stephen Stromberg, and Washington Post columnist Megan McArdle. Steve, Megan, welcome to First Look. Thank you. Thank for having me. All right, so big news that happened that is sort of tangentially related to climate, and that is... Uh, Arizona Senator Kyrsten Cinema announcing that she is leaving the Democratic Party and registering as an independent. She's someone who and Steve uh, first <clears throat> excuse me and then Megan, correct me if I'm wrong, she's been a reliable sort of pro climate scientist. Do you what kind of impact do you see her leaving the party having on the Democratic majority in the Senate?
0: Well, that's a big question. Uh, On climate science, you're right. She's been, she comes from a state that is being hit by uh, heat wave and drought. And uh, in fact, when she was brokering the Inflation Reduction Act, insisted on um, drought funding uh, for the state. She's been very sensitive to the potential climate impacts uh, for the people she represents. And so um, really, she hasn't been sort of the big problem in terms of passing climate legislation, whether this has broader implications for how the Senate runs and other policy areas. I mean, that is really the big question, and we don't really know yet um, exactly how she sees her relationship with the broader Democratic caucus, how that's going to affect the way the committees work, how that's going to affect the right. way potentially judges are you know, gotten through. Um, so it could be really big. I think you're right, though, on climate. Um, she's been sort of a pretty consistent uh, voice of concern.
3: Mm-hmm. Megan, your any, any thoughts? Look, I think that this complicates the the Democratic control of the Senate a little bit. I think it's going to complicate a bunch of things about how the the Senate runs. But ultimately, I I basically agree. She is, you know, she is now the swing vote. And her views on climate have been, you know, like pretty, pretty reasonable, I think. And are like, you know, I don't think that that's going to complicate the administration's drive. I think, honestly, what complicates the administration's job on climate is the fact that voters don't want to pay any significant amount to do anything about climate. Um, And that is not going to nothing. That's not going to shift because of, of Sinema's move
1: hmm all right let's jump right on into um the the climate program that the washington post washington post live has been doing all week yesterday um it featured senator mitt romney of utah who raised this warning about how the united states is fighting this climate battle listen
2: look if every car in america stopped running co2 emissions keep going up in the world mm-hmm. so we have to do things that will be adopted everywhere not just things that that make us feel better about ourselves here those things nice to do uh, they're not harmful to do necessarily but when we spend a lot of money to do them and divert from the real answers then i think they could be counterproductive
1: so steve does senator romney have a point that unless the rest of the world is also all in america alone can't solve this well of course
0: he has a point um global global warming is by definition global, um, global. china is is now the largest greenhouse gas emitter, um, you know. But that unremarkable insight doesn't really imply, as many would argue, that the U.S. should do nothing or too little. Um, you know, look at this from other countries' perspective. They're saying the same thing about the U.S. And in fact, the U.S. is the largest historical emitter, meeting of greenhouse gases, meaning that we're responsible for a lot of the problem out there that is hitting countries um, that haven't really put much into the atmosphere. Um, so uh, unlike Europe, also, we've been sort of inconsistent in our commitment to dealing with the problem, uh, to clean up our act. Uh, we've tried to sabotage two major global climate uh, agreements. Um, so the only way through, I think, is for the U.S. to show that it's acting in good faith, finally, uh, and consistently, and seriously, and willing to sacrifice along with Europe, and, but also, importantly, China and a every other country uh, big emitter um, mm-hmm. you know and show others that they they won't be acting alone. We're always so preoccupied with this question of oh no are we gonna act alone? Well actually others have been acting uh, and, and in many ways we've been the laggard. Um, so uh, the only way to pressure a China to pressure an India to pressure Brazil South Africa to to change is to show that we are also changing.
1: Well, speaking of China and and getting them to do more, Megan, I'm just wondering, are there any options available to the United States and the the Biden administration to get greater cooperation from China?
3: I'm gonna be honest, I think if the Biden administration had a lot of great options for pressuring China, climate would be pretty far down on its list of things it wanted to pressure China to do. Um, The fact is China is an independent nation. They have independent interests. And one of their interests is, making their citizens rich. And that's a hard thing for me sitting in my nice, large, warm house filled with stuff to criticize them for. Um, but I think that that, that just complicates uh, climate. And I think that, well, I certainly agree that we should not just say, oh, well, China's going to be admitting a lot. We might as well go ahead and, and, and admit more too. Um, I do think that that this really determines how we approach this problem, where we put the money that we're willing to spend. And I think that anything that is about subsidizing kind of domestic technology, I think there's maybe an argument for subsidizing kind of early stage technologies where you might be able to kind of push them over the, the, the edge in terms of becoming viable independently. But ultimately, if your policy is about we're going to subsidize renewable power, we're going to subsidize these things at the consumer level, we're going to make it cheaper to buy renewable power, uh, power by like intervening with the government, you're actually going in the wrong direction because you're creating technologies that can't survive without subsidy. And the way that we're actually gonna beat climate is to figure out technologies that allow us to live the rich lifestyle we have um, with less carbon, with lower carbon emissions that are so good that even China and India and the developing world are all gonna embrace these things voluntarily because they're not just lower carbon, they're also cheaper and better. That's where we have to get rather than this kind of austerity agenda that unfortunately the environmental movement in the West has been historically extremely committed to. I think it is terribly counterproductive precisely because we don't have any way to make China do anything they don't wanna do.
1: And you know, Steve, this gets to a large, uh, a larger issue and that's as Megan was getting at the, the role of government. And I'm just wondering how do you see the balance between what the federal government can do and what we should expect from the private sector in, in the cause of climate change, or doing something right. about climate change. I mean, ideally, the private
0: sector, I mean, it has to, not even ideally, the, the, the private, private sector has to take a massive, predominant role. I mean, we're talking about transforming the economy, and carbon runs through the economy, you know, everywhere you look, from, uh, and, and places you wouldn't think. All right, we all understand that starting up your you know, gas-powered car. There's going to be emissions involved. But did you know that just to make cement, like that process, is very greenhouse gas intensive, and we actually don't have great ways of fixing that right now. So, ah, uh, uh, I totally agree with Megan in the sense that, um, you have to have a research agenda that will, uh, funded by the government, that will figure out ways to get over really thorny problems like that, and also to make some of these technologies. Not only sort of viable but uh, uh, econo- you know scientifically but uh, economically viable. Um, so uh, how do we do, do low carbon cement? How do we do uh, 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 clean up other industrial sectors? How do we get agriculture? How do we preserve forest? How do we put the right incentives in place? Now, from my point of view, ideally, you'd also have um, uh, a carbon tax along with that that would encourage companies. And consumers to think, hey, um, uh, I'm going to invest in the you know the greener option because over the long run it'll be cheaper for me. And we don't exactly have that. The IRA comes at it from a from a different way, and it could be could work pretty well. It's it's going to sort of change the way people can you know the sorts of electricity they can buy by encouraging utilities to build out uh, renewables and. And so, um, you know, it's another way to get at it. I, I, I think that it's a little bit more government intensive than would I, would be ideal, so it's a, a second best approach, but, you know, um, it, and it will definitely cost taxpayers a lot, but, um, you know, it could work, it could fill that gap. Uh, uh,
1: Megan, I'm dying to hear your, your uh, reaction to what Steve said, but in particular, because I agree with Steve, why shouldn't we have a carbon tax i mean sh- wouldn't that be the proper role of government in-, in this battle is to put a price on carbon
3: carbon tax would be great i think we're all we're all in a like festival of agreement here look i'm I've, I've been advocating for a carbon tax for like at least 10 years maybe 15 um this is an efficient way to price the negative externality of um of carbon which is just a way to say that like look right now it's free to, for uh, industry to contribute to greenhouse gases, it shouldn't be free. It's costing other people things, and we should price that appropriately. Um, and I, you know, I, I I can't agree more that there's, you know, we don't th- we often think that this is just about our cars and maybe heating our houses and our airplane trips. It's about so much more than that. Fertilizer is made with fossil fuels. Plastic, um, which is really, you know, very important and very hard to do without. Steel. Involve, you know, all of those things, decarbonizing those things is going to be really hard. That said, I think attacking transportation and power, where we do have alternative, uh, you know, solutions, I think that that's great. And I do think there's a role for government in terms of building out infrastructure and other things. But ultimately, I think our number one priority, our number one focus, whether it's with a carbon tax or anything else, has to be how are we creating the technologies that are going to make poor countries adopt these technologies? voluntarily instead of polluting fossil fuels um because they are cheaper because they are better because they reduce particulate emissions which are a huge problem for us as well as them frankly but bigger for them um that has to be the number one goal it can't be about like well if we kind of jury-rigged our economy and had a bunch of you know punishments for emitting carbon and then a bunch of you know incentives for, for using lower carbon technologies that's fine i'm not against it exactly but it isn't helping the broader problem, which is that if we leave that oil in the ground, someone else is going to pull it out and use it unless we make it unless we offer them a better, more economically viable alternative. This gets to
1: something else you wrote years ago. you wrote years ago. You warned that if the United States achieved its goal of zero emissions, that would simply make fossil fuels cheaper. For developing countries, which which would, to quote you, develop in carbon intensive ways, is that happening now?
3: Uh, yeah, I mean, I think we are. We have seen some of it. You know, look, right now, for example, oil markets are pretty much tapped out of capacity. And so we're, you know, whenever we change how much oil we use, we're just kind of reshuffling who gets the oil. We slightly lower the price, but then, you know, the consumption goes up to about as much as people can produce. And so I think that you know we have to think about that's not necessarily bad, right? It's like a subsidy for development to, to poorer countries, but it's not helping the problem of climate. Um, and so you know we we really do have to think about the universe is not here to please us. Morally, the fact that the United States has emitted a ton of carbon to get where we are doesn't mean that like. The United States can fix this problem through reducing its consumption. It's a much bigger problem than that, and we have to figure out ways to help other countries reduce their consumption, um, so that everyone, you know, is protected from the worst outcomes.
1: Today is filled with lots of great quotes. The universe is not here here to please us, Steve. We started this conversation talking about um, Senator Kirsten Cinema of Arizona. Uh, announcing that she's leaving the Democratic Party and becoming an independent. She was part of a sort of a duo in in the Senate that drove Democrats crazy. Her partner in, in driving Democrats crazy is Senator Joe Manchin. You've been closely following a bill he proposed that's opposed by both progressive House Democrats and Senate Republicans. What is it? Right. Uh,
0: So, this is a big permitting reform bill, and I'm sorry if your eyes just glazed over because you (laughs) just heard the words permitting reform bill in order. Um, Basically, uh, it takes a huge amount of infrastructure to rebuild the economy. That's kind of obvious, right? But I mean, we're talking massive build-out, an entirely new energy economy. You know, uh, solar plants, yes, but factories, mines to mine the minerals, we need to build uh, uh, batteries, uh, uh, and, and also, very importantly, transmission lines is incredibly important. And, and what that means is just electrical wires, but high-capacity ones that can zap uh, electricity that's produced in, say, the Midwest, where there's a lot of wind. Uh, power to a city somewhere else where there's a lot of demand uh, for the, that electricity. And also keep in mind, we're talking about renewables. And so the sun has to shine, the wind has to be blowing, and it, it doesn't shine and blow at the same place at all times. And so you have to have the capacity to move it around the country uh, according to demand. Um, and this is completely anticipatable, but it's very hard to build anything in this country, in large part because of um, uh, often overlapping federal and state permitting regulations, and it's very easy to stop this stuff. There have been, there's time and time again, important big uh, transmission line, you know, electric electric wire uh, projects have failed because they've just kind of gotten caught in years of permitting hell. So Mansions' bill would redress this, um, and it's gotten some opposition from the left because uh, uh, there is a, a sense among some in the environmental movement that. Actually, these curbs are very important for stopping things like pipelines, like uh, fossil fuel pipelines. And on the right, they say, "Well, it's it's uh, it doesn't go far enough," and also they want to punish Mansion for um, helping pass the IRA earlier this year. So uh, it's 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 dead for the moment. Um, we'll see what happens in the next Congress. I a little bit pessimistic that the MAGA House will be interested in passing something like this, but I cannot describe how important it is to get this done in order to
1: honestly rebuild the energy economy. It's gonna take this. Um, uh, uh, Megan, in the, I think, 90 seconds that we have left, pick up on what Steve was talking about. And if you can, the, the MAGA House, as Steve put it, do they even care? Does this incoming Republican majority even care about climate change or doing anything about it?
2: I think
3: it you know this is not just a question about climate change. Permitting reform is just good, right? Our our, our system of permitting infrastructure is wildly uh, overregulated. It makes that it it provides so many veto points that allow little groups to you know sue and tie you up in court. Um, that make it you know there's so many like overlapping regulations at various levels that you know I I remember I talked to one guy who does who works on the problem of putting in chargers for electric vehicles estimated that they need to tr- to start citing five sites in order to get one to two actually permitted because of all of these different problems and that's a that's a huge issue that republicans should care about i think the issue is you know you ask do they care about climate I ask, do they care about anything that is legislation? Do they care about anything that is doing politics rather than complaining about Twitter's moderation policies? And I am not sure that the answer is yes. I think this has been a problem for the Republican Congress really since around 2010, where they just stopped being interested in getting things done and started being interested in grandstanding for for their base, yelling about the, the liberal media and look, I share a lot of their critiques about Twitter's moderation policy. I have written so many columns about liberal bias in, Mac- in media and academia. I think these are real problems, but they are not real problems that Congress can solve. And Congress actually has a lot of issues it needs to deal with for its constituents. And Republicans are frankly AOL when they're when it comes to dealing with most of them.
1: Wow, it's Friday, but Reverend McCardle <laughs> just took us to church there
3: <laughs> on incoming- about that. <laughs>
1: Uh, Steve Stromberg, Megan McArdle, we got to go. Thanks for (laughs) coming. Thanks for coming on this special. This is climate. First look. Have a great weekend. Thanks, you too.
0: Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.